Hi, this is Jordan Chambers, and you're listening to another episode of Reframing History. My name is R.C. Davis. I was born in Cogdale, Georgia. The South and the Southern way of life has always been an enigma, a kind of sphinx on the American land, one writer said. White people speak of their way of life with pride and affection. But one white man from Maryland, H.L. Mencken, wrote, Fundamentalism, Ku Klux revivals, lynchings, Ogwala politics. These are the things that always occur to a northerner when he thinks of the South. What is the southern way of life? Is it based on the myth or the reality of the past? Did it ebb its life away at Shiloh and Gettysburg? Or does it still live for the 43 million whites and 11 million Negroes who live there today? That clip from a 1965 documentary called The Negro in the South featured Ozzie Davis. A great way to introduce this week's episode where Scott French and I come back together and discuss the important role of memory and shaping perceptions of community history. Let's take a listen. So, Scott, you're back from vacation. Thanks for joining me again for our conversation. Oh, it's great to be back. Uh, you had some great guests. Uh, I, think, I think it's almost time for me to retire. <laughs> they were great. Too good. Right. Well, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that like the early podcast with just me and Scott talking and Scott hasn't just simply been on vacation. He's actually been working very hard. I myself have also been like in the midst of a massive move and transformation and things like that. But I've managed to carve out some time to reach out to people and those some of the conversations we've been, having, we've been hearing so far. But this week we're coming back and I really want to dig back into questions related to community history. And actually what we're going to do right now is we're actually going to listen to a little clip that I recorded uh, in Hannibal Square in 2007. And this clip is really going to help us talk a little bit about this question that I think both Scott and I have talked about uh, numerous times in our conversation and thinking about local history, which is like the different mythologies and periods that the community articulate. Now, sometimes they do coincide with how historians and academics like to think about the past, but some of the complexities in trying to understand that sort of community narrative. So let's take a moment and listen to this clip from way back in 2007 when I was a young man and was full of life. No, that, that was a joke. Um, and so, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about it. Take a listen. My name is Frank Comer. And uh, born and raised right here in Winter Park back in 1950. Okay. And, uh, you know, lived the life of, lived a good life, quite honestly. When families were families back then. They aren't families no more. Society tells you that. But not only did my, my, my mom and dad spend time with us, but everybody else's mom and dad knew us and spent time with us. And, discipline us and so it was it was a it was a great time in one apart for us uh, we had great times here uh, we just wasn't afforded some of the uh, extended material things that our kind of white parts had but uh, our community was it was more about love fun and happiness in our side of town you know love peace and happiness was what it was all about we didn't have a lot but 
the love that we had outweighed any material that we had here in Winter Park. And that was that was the difference I think in from, from a lot of different communities. Our community was it was it was it was united, it was close knit, there wasn't any crime to speak of back in those days. It was just screen doors were left open at night. Uh, it was just a different community than what it is today, but uh, segregation definitely played a big part in that. So you just heard this clip that I recorded in 2007 with a man named Frank Coleman. Very short clip, but what's really interesting there, of course, is uh, as I was talking to Scott about this, is that he romanticizes, and romanticizes is perhaps maybe a harsh word, but he remembers the past in Hannibal Square in a very particular way. And as, mm-hmm. um, as historians, me and Scott have talked a little bit about black memory around um, the period of Jim Crow segregation. And at some level, as we always talk about when we talk about this sort of local history project, the stories that we talk about in terms of thinking about the Winter Park story in a broader context, be it New South or Global South, really sort of bring to, to the fore these bigger questions of how we want to remember the past. And so when I listen to Frank Coleman, I often think to myself, it might be that a someone who doesn't necessarily understand the complexities of segregation might think that he's romanticizing, that he, he wants to go back to segregation. And that's not what he's saying, right, Scott? That's not what he's saying. We had this discussion once, and right. you talked very eloquently about <laughs> what what... What is, what is happening when you hear a person from a historically black community talk in that way? And I want you to sort of talk a little bit about how you sort of like frame that. Because I always, I always remember what you said about that, that the way that black people tend to remember segregation and, and that, that past landscape. Well, well, what I picked up on uh, from Mr. Coleman's oral history was the idea that we were united but really what, what he's talking about is that segregation created a world in which people from different classes, all black people, living in the same place. And there was a kind of organic nature to that community, right? Where we, we, weren't, we had not sort of desegregation and integration had not broken up the neighborhood and other forces like uh, gentrification now, that these are forces that are pulling the community apart. And he's remembering a time when you know, working people, uh, poor people, the business classes, the professional classes, that people lived in close vicinity to one another. And I, so, so it's kind of a memory of that. And um, it might also be childhood as well, that these are, I believe he's talking about childhood memories. And that's, right. that's always been an issue when we think about oral histories taken from people in their middle age to older years remembering their childhood years. Right. So maybe, maybe, you know, it's not really romanticizing in any way. It's just we think of our childhoods as being in some ways more innocent. And, and he talks about it being fun. And, you know, you have to take that into consideration in part. I'm sure it was fun, you know. It, but I think, I, I think we can all imagine that our childhoods were, in some ways, we were protected, right, from the harsher realities of, of our, the world we lived in. Right. One of the things, of course, when you talk about that, the idea of uh, the different classes of African-American humanity are all sort of close together because of segregation. That, of course, references a really classic academic argument about 
I remember particularly when work disappears with William Julius Wilson, who mm-hmm. has a whole sort of like framework about the closeness of different economic classes within the African community during segregation, the end of segregation, basically creating these huge spaces, this sort of spatial division between classes and the, the breakdown, of the kind of bonds that were created by having sort of elites within the black community and working class people in the black community within close proximity. And this is, it's a little a classic sort of academic argument around why ghetto, the whole ghettoization argument, which is a, a huge literature and we are not going to go over that literature, but that idea of the sort of like boundary created by segregation, the Jim Crow, the color line is an important one because in fact, the institutions that, that Coleman, Mr. Coleman is talking about are institutions like schools, right? Like he talks about his parents and like the whole community raising him, right? And uh, I've done oral histories with people in, in Hannibal Square over the years. And one of the things that when you have, I've had residents come in and talk to classes. And one of the things we always have to talk through after those residents leave is like exactly what you said. Like they're remembering their experience as children. And one of the things about Hannibal Square is that it's a lot of people who are doing in the social economic landscape of the time as black people quite well. They own property. They have really strong sort of like institutions they're a part of. Uh, if you think about the sort of physical landscape, some of the institutions, some of the churches in Hannibal Square, the lodges in Hannibal Square, the businesses that were in Hannibal Square. And so, you know, they can have really vivid memories of a social world in that black, that black world, sports that they attended and events that they attended and like, you know, they went to Joe High School or they were part of the Hungerford School and so on and so forth. And they were shielded at some level by their parent from the harsher elements of this, right? Like I, I remember one story where a, a resident talked about traveling and they never stopped because they had a, a green book and the the dad refused to, to stop any segregated place, you know, where they couldn't get service. And like, so they were, they were always shielded, right? And so they naturally remember their childhood as one where they were affirmed and they were shielded. And that's a really important part of the the story. So that's one that's one narrative. And and there's another clip I, I want us to sort of like take a listen to. And it's actually uh, Martha Bryant Hall, who is a very active community member in Hannibal Square. And uh, her story is, I think, emblematic of a different that same the same period, but she sort of narrativizes it and it actually connects this sort of like the black social world aspect because she references the world and the, the landscape in a very particular way. So let's take a moment to listen to that, that little clip and, and then we'll come back and sort of like put that into perspective. So take a listen. Well, first of all, in 1959, we moved from Orlando to Eatonville, Winter Park, Maitland area mm-hmm. in that community. <clears throat> and living there, I've really learned about Zora Neale Hurston by attending Rollins College. It's the first time I ever heard of her, and I bought her book called Dust Strikes on the Road, her autobiography. My passion for Winter Park, I married a pastor by the name of Elder Jerry L. Hall, 
He was a Pentecostal Church of God in Christ. And he was always concerned about the West Side. He was the secretary for the ministerial allowance. And that was a group of black pastors that went around to try to preserve Winter Park. They helped integrate uh, Winter Park Post Office, Publix, and Winn-Dixie. Okay. Because during that time, when people were complaining and they realized there was no one there to represent the black race, they uh, got involved. And then Reverend Hall went to the First Congregational Church. He was one of the first of the 50 black preachers that attended the seminary and the instructors came from Rollins College. So by real rooted in Winter Park, <clears throat> he, his home was on Lake Island Estate. He and his wife, his first wife, Lila, and they had <clears throat> a home and two lots over there. But through eminent domain, they were displaced. And that is when he bought his house, the property over on Lyman and Virginia. And that house is 58 years of age. Uh, we tried to get, we were going to get the house on the, apply for the historical register during, um, before he died. But so much came up about uh, his daughter's home being sold to Mr. Bellows. So that took a lot of our thoughts and my uh, energy away. <clears throat> so in 19, 2000, I'm sorry, 2016, <clears throat> with four and a half months of uh, persevering, we were able to get his home at 331 West Lyman on the historical register. And okay, so you just heard Martha Bryan Hall talking about her memories of Hannibal Square and Scott and I, of course, have had a lot of interactions with Ms. Hall and her daughter, Maria. They're both very strong community activists. Scott, I know that one of the things about the way that Martha sort of talks about her, her memories of like late 1950s, and I'm square, one of the things that struck me when, when I first did that interview is that she really sort of like thought of it as like a kind of like black social world, right? Like that Eatonville, Zoyner Hurston, that was all part of like how she sort of formulated her understanding of this landscape. And that really ties into some of the work that you've done recently about the origin-ness of Eatonville. And I think that's a, a really important mm -hmm. point to sort of like to talk a little bit about. So I think you right. should share a little bit about that, that landscape that you've been researching. Right, well, when you, you, know, you, you think about the, uh, the ideal of a, of a unified community of uh, homeowner, home ownership, right? Of, right self-governance, self kind of self-determination within a political boundary. Eatonville, of course, is the ideal, the, really the ideal of that, right? It's right. The, going back to the, the first, the, what is it, the uh, oldest incorporated municipality in the United States, and I know that it may not be the oldest, we, we'll say one of the oldest, but that it, it's probably the most famous, right. uh, thanks to Zornia, and the fact that she retells the history of Eatonville. And as Ms. Brian Hall says, she tells it so eloquently in her autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road, but also uh, in her fiction, Their Eyes Were Watching God, and in her folklore, uh, Mules and Men. Um, she continually returns to Eatonville. 
And you might think, well, that's Zora. You know, Zora remembers it well. But everybody you talk to who, who has lived in Eatonville for any stretch of time or who has deep roots within the community will very powerfully uh, convey to you the meaning, what it means to have grown up in Eatonville that this is very real and it continues that, that it's, it's not just Zora, but it's, and it's not that they connect th to Eatonville through Zora. These are people who connect to Eatonville through their experience, their lived experience there. Right. And it's not, what's interesting there is it's not a segregated neighborhood, but it is a town that's set apart. And, and I think it kind of has many of the same uh, qualities in memory that we're hearing in the oral histories with uh, Martha Bryant Hall and uh, Frank Coleman. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's really sort of compelling when we when we started talking about these different periods is, you know, what are the tools that people are employing in these different moments to sort of rep replicate community, to sort of support institutions, and how those different tools are affected by broader social social economic transformations, right? So, uh, and during the period of segregation you have these external forces that are creating pressure that force African-Americans into close proximity, but also force them to create networks of reliance upon one another because they don't have access to a wider world, right? Like they right. do not have access to this world. And, and while older people might, now as older people, they might not necessarily remember that aspect of the danger associated with right. leaving their social world and venturing out into the, the wider white world. And one of the things about Winter Park has always been really interesting when you talk to people about questions around mm -hmm. segregation, about questions around race, is they often describe it as a place that didn't have any racial problems. They often right. describe it as a place that, you know, uh, in a previous in a previous episode, uh, there's a clip that I, that that people listen to from this film called Keeping Pace with Tomorrow, and there's a line in that film that I always has always struck me. It's like it's a southern place with a northern atmosphere. Uh, mm. So this idea that Winter Park is not part of the South but is is in the South is a really important idea and. This idea is one that we've talked about before, like the different generations of white people and how they're transformed and the generations of African-Americans, how they're transformed. That's a big part of the Winter Park story, right? Yes. And, and it's, a hidden, it's a hidden part of the Eatonville story, the philanthropic classes of Northern whites who continue to sort of have a presence in um, Winter Park, uh, both through, you know, Snowbird residence, but also through Rollins College and, and other institutions th that I think perhaps there are sort of patron-client relationships that are protective uh, to a certain extent, not fully protective, but that provide a kind of buffer that may not be present in other areas of, of say, Florida or, or the South. Right, and I I do think this is one of the one of the things that we have to think about when we talk about how this project sheds a light on the New South idea, right? Like, and previously we've 
we've talked a little bit about the the economy of leisure in Central Florida. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that is these seasonal residents who are bringing, at some level, a different perspective on race and class that are, is really important to the founding narrative of Winter Park, right? Like the idea of the snowbird is not an, a, a new idea in any way, shape, or form. It's an old idea. And in the case of Winter Park, snowbirds are incredibly important parts of the landscape, right? Like they are coming and their economic impact, they're buying land in Winter Park, they're setting up households, but they're also employing African-Americans. And then they leave. And so African-Americans are in a position of caretakers for properties. And they're also in a position of like, they make a good wage and are able to acquire property beyond the property they're living on right beyond the negro lots that are sold in the, the sort of founding period to african-americans these laboring african-americans have this steady income because of this seasonal cycle are able to, to invest that property invest that money into other properties and it mm-hmm. makes a huge difference and then on the other side of that perhaps the most extreme example of that is edenville which you've done a lot sort of like documenting uh, the whole industry of service beyond the sort of subsistence mm-hmm. independent, right? Right, which is, which is really not part of the Zora story, sort of all inward looking and uh, an island almost, you know? And, but when you hear Joe Clark, one of the founders of Eatonville, in, talk about Eatonville in the interviews, he, he describes it as being very much tied into this regional economy. And what he, what he really emphasizes is that that the people of Eatonville are not dependent, entirely dependent on employment outside of Eatonville. They're not entirely dependent on their person who hires them as a domestic worker or a citrus worker because they can always rely in hard times on their gardens, right? That they, they have, they can support themselves. I mean, right. they would be, it would not be easy, but they would live. They could live and they could survive and they could, they could feed themselves and sustain themselves. But that isn't, that's not a recipe for, for prosperity, but it is a kind of security. And I think, too, having their own government, right, to have their right. own elected officials is a sense of that, that they can, within that structure, weather whatever kind of economic storms or political storms might be happening because they have control over where they live. Right, and that becomes like an incredibly important part of the story because, as we mentioned before, there are African-Americans that live in Hamilton Square and own property in Eatonville. And there are people who live in Eatonville that own property in Hannibal Square. So they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're sharing sort of like this sort of black social world, but they do represent definitely different political pathways African-Americans pursue, right? Mm-hmm. There's a cooperation narrative that we associate with Hannibal Square, coming apart, one apart, and all the, all the bad things that happen with that, right? And I don't, I don't mean that in the sense it was bad that they made a decision. I'm, it's bad in the sense that they could not overcome the rising tide of white supremacy that defines the late 1890s. And when they are detached from the town, they essentially mm-hmm. rest outside the town boundary until they're reabsorbed and the political structure is set up in such a way that they, they can never have representation, right? They, they would never have right. aldermen from the West Side. Whereas even though was a black community and mm-hmm. remained a black community. 
Now, I think it's important to recognize when we fast forward to so the post-war period, right after World War II, both of those communities are maneuvering in that post-war post-war II period. We both have done a lot of work in the archive and have seen evidence of the West Side Civics League, which is a sort of organization that's created on the West Side, sort of work to sort of promote cooperation. And clearly some of that is about economic and development, uh, access Mm -hmm. to services, so on and so forth. But in Edenville, they remain a kind of siloed space. But with one major change being the defining educational institution, the Hungerford School being absorbed uh, into the education system, right? So if you want to go to high school and, and, and win a park, you actually end up going to Hungerford School, right? They, they cut a deal, win a park, cuts a deal with Edenville so that black kids don't have to, don't go to school, high school and win a park, they go to Edenville. Um, and that persists until really the civil rights movement makes it untenable, right? So this is this is the relationships between the you know historically the first incorporated African American community and this other community only two miles away that takes the pathway of cooperation and then has to deal with consequences of that and in the contemporary landscape those consequences are gentrification right that right. Uh, and the case of Ms. Hall another reason why. I wanted to talk to Ms. Hall because like she championed the idea against, I would say, tremendous resistance on the part of some to make her home uh, historic, to get it on the historic register. Reverend right. Hall, Reverend Jerry Hall, important figure in the, in the West Side community, an advocate for African-Americans, worked on, on issues of civil rights and desegregation. And she wanted to get her the home that they shared together on the historic registry, but faced some resistance in part because on the initial first blush, they, you know, the architectural argument is not there. It's a sort of block house of a certain, you know, very generic type. But of course, they were making a cultural argument, right? They weren't making an architectural argument. They were making a cultural mm-hmm. argument. And eventually she was able to overcome resistance and her house now sits on um, the historic register. And I think she wants to pursue the idea of some sort of home museum for the house, which I think would actually be a compelling story, and a compelling space, mm-hmm. and would help to sort of shore up what I think is a needed, much more clear narrative museum on the West Side. Or it's not to say that the Hamble Square Heritage Center, mm-hmm. which already exists there, isn't a great resource. It is, but there's not a clear sort mm-hmm. of narrative historical museum on the West Side. And you can make the argument that the Winter Park Historical Association you know, mm-hmm. operates out of the of the former uh, railroad depot is a narrative museum with a with which has exhibits that are very clearly Winter Park history, right? And wouldn't it be great to have something Hamilton Square that also was able to provide a really clear narrative structure, right? Would be my argument there. Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of brings us back to the question of like you know the project and how we we are thinking about the narrative, right? Right. Well, you know, I. I I think it's interesting to see um, that this drive to preserve, physically preserve the uh, the fabric, you know, the uh, the feel of this earlier era, 
is is evident in both Eatonville and Hannibal Square, right? Right. That Eatonville preserve Eatonville community, which is the founder of the Zora Festival, that originated as a battle to fight a four lane highway uh, being brought through the center of town that would have fundamentally changed the character of Eatonville and the small town residential character. And they fought against other uh, incursions such as um, adult entertainment and right. uh, yeah. environmental, environmental uh, threats like the bringing of a municipal uh, incinerator to, to Eatonville. So, so their sense of community has been strengthened by the threats to the historic the, the, the historic landscape and to hear Martha Bryant Hall talk about or the home that, that his story is connected to some physical uh, interpret a, a site that can be interpreted to 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 tell the story of, a, of an earlier era suggests a real a genuine love of place right a genuine strong connection to place that might not be expected among people who had been segregated right who had been pushed aside who had been who had been uh, relegated to the other side of the tracks, right? right. How could, you know, an outsider's view would be, how could they love this place? How could they, how could they be nostalgic? Would they not want to move away from that and forget that and erase that past? And it's this love of place. And it reminds me, I, I, I know this is kind of a pushing the metaphor, but I, I'm going to remember when um, in Thomas Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia, he said, you know, how could he's arguing for colonization of emancipated slaves, manumitted slaves. He says, how could the slave have love of country? And the response to that from uh, David Walker and others was, this is our country. We <laughs> built it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? exactly. and I, yeah. The same logic. It's like we, we built Winter Park. It's our town. It's our city. Right. And uh, Eatonville, certainly Eatonville, it's right built into the, the um, you know, the origin story of Eatonville. You know, we created this. this. This is our home. This is our town. And I think that's what's so striking. Probably why it's the memory is so, in some ways, it's not nostalgic and it's positive because they're telling you what they love about it, why they care. You know, there's, it's not just any memory of childhood it's the childhood in this particular place that matters and it's and there's something threatening it there are forces at work that are that are threatening that and they're not right. simply it's not simply the results of desegregation but other economic forces other social forces there's a lot of things that are tearing at communities right right yeah and you hear all of that that's all kind of put together, but it may be associated because the memory is of a period that was in the, in the midst of segregation, that it gets connected very directly to, this was the segregated world and this is the world after segregation. But we know a lot has happened and there are a lot of forces at work. So disentangling some of that is, is a challenge for us, I think, as we, as we listen to these oral histories, which are incredibly insightful and valuable. Right, and I, and I think that's one of the things why I wanted to, uh to have the chance to sort of like capture uh, these voices, Miss, Mrs. Brian Hall's oral histories in the Olin archive. This was one of the mm -hmm. oral histories I was able to do with, with a resident. And, and, I, and I do think, you know, it, I this last year, I was the co-chair of the Society for American City and Regional Planning History meeting 
and we did a plenary and one of the things that I pointed out during that that sort of like opening plenary is that the, you know the story of planning uh, the story of urbanization is not the story as it's sort of written it's not the story that many black people remember and until they hear a story that they remember it's not going to be a story they accept and mm-hmm. you really do get a sense that it's not to say that the history as written is not, in fact, taking into account that Black people are there. It's just there's this question, as you rightly point out, of their agency in building that world, the mm-hmm. things that they did to make that world. That's not in the story. Like, they're, they're always victimized, right? And, like, students are, are can, right. can be really, right. especially African-American students over the years, like, like a had a few that like, you know, when am I going to hear a story about black people doing something that's like, you know, it's not slavery. It's not like, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I think that these questions about black agency and black community mm-hmm. building and, and, and a black experience of constructing space and maintaining space against really harsh odds and structural limitations are important part of the right. story, even as we talk about, uh, as as you all know, uh, the contemporary questions around gentrification and displacement, right? So we both have a colleague, Carolyn Chung, who is in your department, but me and Carolyn have had this discussion about gentrification versus displacement. Because I always say displacement, right? What's happening in Hannibal Square is displacement. And gentrification, it's a very different term in my mind. And we often, you know, we have a good nature conversation about what it means mm-hmm. what to say mm-hmm. gentrification. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that you recently done some work um, on, on this as well. Um, taking mm-hmm. the, taking, taking a framework of, as comes through in, and I think these oral histories that the black social world offers some protection for African-Americans so they could build these institutions. Right. And that's a different, you know, this idea of refuge uh, with segregated spaces, with black spaces in this period is, is the other side of this story. And I, I think it's a, a complexity, as you rightly point out, that we always have to navigate as we, we try to tell the story. So it, this is one of the things that I think we definitely are, are, are wrestling with as we we come up with this sort of more holistic narrative for this story but hopefully for people out there listening they can see how even with a seemingly simple story of winter park history there are bigger forces at play when we when we try to tell this story i'm always reminded of that so this is probably going to be the end of our season for reframing history for various reasons. Guys off vacation, but the, the, the academic year is upon us and we really have to focus <laughs> on uh, trying to come up with our final narrative. And so we're gonna probably go on hiatus, hiatus for a little bit, but that is gonna be great because I think we will, we will be right at 10 episodes. So we're like a sort of Netflix show. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so for those of you who are like, how, what's going to happen here? 
well, we're, we're going to end it on a cliffhanger and you're going to have to come back next season and, and you'll have to find out what happened. So Scott, thanks for, of course, being my partner in this, in this process. I really appreciate it. I know that you got a lot, lot on your plate uh, and you indulge me in this conversation, but it's helped me a lot to think about these things. So sort of out loud, because this is really basically what we always do. Anyway, we basically talk to each other about things and go like, oh, that's a good idea. We go and write it down. I go like, oh, that's going to help me like, because I'm not layer. So we basically <laughs> made this whole process public. Right. <laughs> you said you writing in public, you know, Oh, yeah, so we're thinking out loud and, and this will find, the ideas that we're developing here are going to find their way into this final presentation that we're developing. Um, and we're, we're, we're going to do it now. You know, we, we, we're out of excuses, Julian. <laughs> we got to start we writing it. That, that. We never had excuses. We never had excuses. No, no, I mean, you know, because we were, we we're going to talk about it for 10 episodes but the 10 episodes are up now. <laughs> we got to, we got to, we actually did start this. So, you know, we yeah, have a draft. Right. Um, yeah. I, I have to say, I have to say, Julian, that I really, some like even listening to the oral histories you played really has been helpful for me. You know, it's as simple as hearing the voices um, that can help us bring this to completion to, because we did, or, you know, part of this was listening us listening. Right. I know we did a lot of talking, but you and I have been doing a lot of listening and out, reaching out to people to, to, to collect the, the stories that will find their way into this final presentation and the narrative, find the right narrative. So it's been very helpful for me. Yeah, and I really appreciate um, the opportunity to sort of like pace out um, the thoughts around the, the project because a lot of the the internal infrastructure that may not be very clear in this little final mediated project that we're going to turn in. Um, this is this is what we talked about. Right? Like, like, yes, we're we are dealing with this ideal that is happening. Oh, what are we going to do about like this ideal knowledge creation? Like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, like, there are these like, these bigger things that we're, you know, as people who are doing sort of digital work and also doing sort of like local community work. Like, how do we make this all sort of make sense? at the end of the day. And I know that like you have all these projects that are hyper local and digital and I have these projects that are like hyper local and digital, but at the same time they're also in connection with these broader landscapes. So it it's been great to sort of like use this as a way to talk through some of these issues that would probably end up on the cutting room floor, you know, in the junk file. Like, yeah, I can't this this is not gonna be able we're not gonna be able to fit this into anything. But we have mm -hmm. the podcast to to share with people like yeah see this is what we, <laughs> this is the 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 unspoken part that you missed <laughs> so uh thanks for listening to this whole season of reframing history yeah i'm pretty sure we're gonna do this again guy and i are gonna come back uh for another season and who knows what we'll be talking about then but i think we've both kind of enjoyed this enough that we can justify Continuing on in, in the process of talking through these big historical questions. So thanks a lot, Scott. Thanks, Julian. And thank you for listening out there in, in uh, podcast land.